third episode of Let's Schmooze. I'm Doug Ebach, the original screenwriter for the movie Sweet Home Alabama. Each month, I'll bring on guests for a discussion of topics related to writing for various entertainment media. Today, my guests are former students of mine from Art Center College of Design. We have May Cat, who has written for Transformers Cyberverse on YouTube and 50 States of Fright on Quibi. Um, Matthew Epstein, who is a writer for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which is streaming now and has MNA, which he wrote and directed for Fox Digital Studios, premiering in October at Cannes Series. And Rebecca Cremona, the co-writer and director of the movie Simshar, which was Malta's entry for the Best Foreign Language Academy Award. She's now working on The Gut with Maisie Williams and Rachel Portman attached. City of the Sun, based on the novel by Juliana Mao, um, for producer Sarah Risher, uh, and the pilot Civil Society. Did I pronounce any of that right? Juliana Mao, but most of it's right. Okay, great. Um, all right, so um, why don't we just start by having each of you briefly describe your journey from film school to where you are now. And um, let's start with May. Hi, hello. Hi. Um, so my journey out of film school is also going to include a little bit from my high school, just because um, I was taking Ron Osborne's uh, advanced screenwriting class after yours. And uh, Ron really liked a uh, feature I had written in his class and he believed in it so much. He was like, hey, can do you mind if I pass this along to a producer friend of mine? And I was like, of course, I'm literally 22. That's amazing. And <laughs> he handed it off to a lady named Nikitha Maddox, who was a producer I had met as a teenager from a high school screenwriting competition I won. So, you know, a few years later and she gets a script by me and remembers me and remembers who I am. And we met back up again and uh, like, God bless both Ron and Nikitha. Nikitha ended up passing the script on to some rep some friends who were like at UTA and CAA and I ended up getting repped from those recommendations and here I am. <laughs> Great. And so from getting repped, then that's how you got onto the, uh, to Transformers? Well, I got repped really like right out of college. So I was only 23 and I had to be like a dumb 23 year old for a while. Um, and so I was doing spec scripts here and there, but I wasn't like, I hadn't really kind of figured out the stride of being a professional screenwriter. Um, and then I ended up getting a general over at Hasbro, over at the live action division of Hasbro, uh, because they were, they had released something in the trades about trying to do a G.I. Joe movie the millennial way. And I was like, I'm literally the only millennial I know who cares about G.I. Joe. Please get me a meeting. <laughs> and from there, and like, God bless those guys, they like, that general went super well. But of course, they're not going to give like a 25-year-old a tentpole picture. But they did pass me along to the animation division. And from meeting people at the animation division, I eventually got onto Transformer Cyberverse. Great. Okay. And then uh, Matt, how about you? What's your story? Sure. My story is very similar to May's story. Um, it, it involves Ron Osborne and being a dumb 23-year-old. Um, I, um, I wrote a script while I was in school. Um, I wrote a pilot um, in Ron's class. Actually, I took Ron's class twice. Um, the first time he gave me a D. Um, and I was, I was trying to be experimental. And he later saw like a comedy short that I had done. And he was like, why don't you just do what you're good at? And I was like, okay. Um, so I ended up writing, uh, I ended up writing a comedic pilot in Ron's class. And I also happened to be doing, um, wow, another Transformers connection, actually. I was doing an internship at the time um, at Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi's production company, um, who wrote the Transformers live action movies. Um, and one of the executives there read that pilot that I read in, um, that I had written in Ron's class. Um, he really liked it. He didn't think it was right for, um, their company, but um, he started sending it around to executives um, and I ended up getting repped off of that. Um, like May, uh, I did a bunch of free like specky stuff. Like people would be like, we have this article, do you have a take? And I would be like, of course I have a take. Let me, let me do that. And I kind of floundered 
around doing um, that sort of thing for a while. Um, I think I was, I think I was 21 at the time. Um, and um, after years of sort, I think after like two years of not really getting anything started, um, I actually ended up started to do stand-up comedy and sketch comedy in LA. Um, and sort of through that network, I built up some confidence and I ended up um, making a short film. Um, I actually, while at Art Center, I never shot anything. Um, I did like, I did like exercises in the class, like you have cinematography class, you have exercise, you have directing class, you have to do exercise, but I didn't, um, I actually didn't make any like films while I was in school. I just wrote. So um, I decided that I wanted to like make something and have it out there. And I ended up making a short film that was pretty well received. Um, and my current manager found me off of that short film. Um, so I'm not with my first reps anymore. Um, I'm, I'm with a new manager now and we worked together for kind of several years actually of me writing, working on stuff, um, before I got on Zoe's, which, um, was being produced by the Tannenbaum company where I had had a general meeting, um, years prior. Um, so, um, the executive on Zoe's had known of me and when a staffing opportunity came up on Zoe's was able to say, Hey, my manager was able to say, Hey, you know, Matt, um, he would be good for this. Um, can he meet? And they were like, sure. And I had the meeting on, uh, I think a Friday and I started Zoe's on a Monday. Um, so that was that. And then sort of since then I've had, um, I mean, that was last year. So um, uh, I, I've been uh, working on uh, my own show. Um, and yeah, it's kind of just kind of flowering from there. And uh, so I'm curious about this. You, you fed your current manager off of the short film. How did that work? Did he just see it on YouTube or was it a film festival type deal? Um, I had finished a festival run, um, a pretty cool festival run. And then it was actually um, in a showcase at SAG. SAG uh, after does a short film showcase every year. And um, she had another client in that showcase. Um, and she messaged me on Facebook the next day and said, hey, are you ripped right now? And I was like, nope. Uh, and so, yeah, we just had drinks after that and that's it. That's great, that's great. Yeah. Okay, so um, Rebecca, your story I know is a little bit different because you came out of school and immediately made a movie. Um, I don't know if we, would we call it an um, independent film or not? I mean, you made it in Malta, so um, I'm not sure what, it's an international film, obviously, uh, from an American standpoint, so. Yeah, no, it, it, the story, my story is different, but this, it's different, but I think the core things are, are, are similar in terms of networking and getting things out. But basically, I actually shot a short uh, when I was at Art Center, and um, that short did quite well, but I didn't actually... So it got a jury prize, at the D, a DGA jury prize, and it got um, a student Emmys prize as well, but because of various reasons, I wasn't able to attend um, you know, a network at those events. And I really regretted it. And I put the short in the short film corner at Cannes so that I could go to the market and really network. And then when I was there, actually a French producer watched the short and he wanted to make a feature of the short. But I didn't think that there was a feature to make of the short. In retrospect, it's a bit like silly, but I, not silly, because I don't think there was a story there, but it was a bit cocky. But you know, when you're younger, you are a bit more cocky, at least in my case, I hope. Um, but so, so, but I did have another, um, I did have a feature script that I was like halfway through writing um, and I pitched it to him and he liked that too. So then um, we started, we basically, he optioned it and we went into development. Uh, interestingly enough, he didn't end up producing 
the feature because what happened was, I mean, there were, there were a lot of reasons why he didn't, but we, when that fell through, I had gotten grant development grant money. And so I made, we made a, a teaser trailer. We just shot the, the trailer basically in order as part of a pitching bundle. And the guy who did the visual effects, uh, it, 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 it was only available for like private viewing in this pitching bundle, but the guy who did the video effect, uh, the visual effects for that trailer put it on his website as part of his portfolio. And then the media picked up the trailer and they thought it was a real trailer. And there was all this hype about a movie that hadn't been made. So then we made it from the hype, we were able to be like, you see, there's clearly, you know, there's clearly an appetite for this. And, and we made it um, that way. And then by having that film that then went to several festivals and I was able to properly go to those and network and that's how I got my representation and that's how I got the producers for my next feature. And so in that sense, it's the same in the sense that I think meeting it's amazing how things come from people you have met at some point and then it comes back to, you know, you, you, things might not fully kick off then, but then you meet them a few years later. Like people that I had approached for my first feature are now producing my second feature, you know? Uh, and I think it's, it's, I think that this networking thing is, is just, I know everybody says network, 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 but it's really true. <laughs> Well, and I, and I do think that is, you know, like there's a misconception about networking that it's about, you know, you go to a, a party or a festival or whatever, and you meet someone and you pitch them your idea, your elevator pitch, and they say, great, here's, you know, a million dollars, go, go do it. And it, like, I just, I find it just never works that way. That's just an unrealistic expectation. It's about building an actual network of people that can help you out as you go forward in your career. Oh, there. It's like what Matt said, if he had, if he wasn't in that SAG showcase, you know, the representation wouldn't have contacted him. I think that happened so often. I put something somewhere and the result comes from somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You make, it's a hard business to make plans because you make plans and then you get your break from some completely random other things. <laughs> but, but you got to be in it to, uh, to win it, as they say. So, um, all right. So, um, and now I want to just kind of delve into, uh, Film school, um, you know, my thought is that you know, there's a lot of students in film school. Um, of course, most of them don't have the career success that you guys have had, um, certainly in some cases right out of the gate. Um, so uh, I'm curious what you thought of film school and um, was it helpful to your process? Um, I guess uh, anybody want to take that first? I mean, I think I have a weird ironic opinion because without film school and without meeting like Ron, I would definitely not have the career I have. But I also am a strong proponent proponent of like, you don't need to go to film school. I think if you can, or if you have the ability to go to film school, it is a wonderful environment to have a safe space to experiment and figure out what kind of filmmaker you want to be. And if you didn't have the facilities accessible to you beforehand, to suddenly have equipment and you know it's good to meet people and network but like it's not necessary and I know coming from me that's just like sounds totally hypocritical but I mean guys it's a lot of money <laughs> it was a lot of money and I don't know I don't know if if you put if you gave me a piece of paper that said if you if for this much money these things will happen in your life and I was 18 and like if I had a time machine and I, I don't know if I would look at that and be like, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, Sweet Home Alabama was my master's thesis. So, um, you know, you certainly think that I would be a big proponent and I teach in a film school. So obviously for that career aspect, uh, I should be promoting them, but um, I'm kind of with you. I think, I think it can be very helpful, but it's not, certainly not the only way. And especially for writers. I mean, writers can just write, you know. Um, but also like when I went to film school, um, I had no idea how to make a movie. So I, I went in for production originally. So people would always say, well, why don't you just take all that money and make a movie? And I'm like, I don't know how, right? Like I actually learned something at film school. Um, but that was also a different time when you didn't have DVD commentary tracks and all of that readily available and all kinds of other way, YouTube videos and so forth of how to do stuff, so. Oh, I, I would agree. And especially like with COVID now, there's even more out there that's online, like Comic-Con panels that are online and that you can, you can learn so much and that, um, 
in terms of people who, who are looking for sort of cinematography streams and, 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 you know, not necessarily writing, I do know of some people who have become very successful now who actually crewed on student films without paying the tuition. <laughs> You know, nice. so they would crew and it was very smart actually because oh, yeah. they would get that experience, they would get that network and they didn't pay the tuition. It's true that you wouldn't get the full, I mean, I am the same as me, like I, I, I got a lot, I feel like I got a lot from film school and especially in my case where I come from a country where like to make films is, is like, you know, there is no film school, there is no, uh, you know, it was even more important in a way because that culture is completely absent although there is a strong servicing industry but on the other hand I, there were some extremely um, entrepreneurial students who crewed because uh, I went to AFI before Art Center and um, and they crewed and, and now they're making like one of them is one of the biggest cinematographers out there you know how about you Matt what did you think of film school I think it definitely has its value um, Especially, I think in order to learn how to do it, you have to just make a lot of stuff. And it, it gives you that set determined amount of period. Ho hopefully, once you get into film school, you're not going to quit. You can quit after a semester, but hopefully you've committed to that three or four years, three in the case of Art Center, four years, you know, you've committed to four years of like working on the craft. And I think, you know, for some people, maybe me included, if I hadn't had, uh, you know, those three years of like structured teaching myself and learning from everyone, I might've made a film and quit. But um, I think the, the structure of school is nice. Uh, maybe I'm just not that very, that, that disciplined. But um, if I had failed in the real world as much as I failed in film school, um, I might not have stuck to it. And, um, you know, after film school, it required a number of years of more sticking to it to really get traction. So um, it was nice to have that practice. But of course, um, you know, I, I said I didn't make films in film school. I, I wrote and a, a main reason I didn't make stuff is because of money. Like it costs, you know, yes, you can totally pick up, you know, your iPhone now and make a great feature but I just felt like I didn't have the resources to make what I wanted to make um, because school itself was so expensive um, so it is expensive if you don't have the money I don't think it's worth going into debt over um, at this point I would say that so yeah. um, is there is there something that you would have done different in film school or you know maybe you could say like advice for uh, film students of how not to waste the Incredible investment that they're making. I'm. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I I always, I always took it very seriously. I was like, "This is extraordinarily expensive." I don't think I ever missed a class or like a project or like I never missed anything because I was like, "I'm going to get every dollar's worth." Um, I would say if you're going to go to film school and you want to be a filmmaker, I think you really have to like treat it like an apprenticeship and like don't treat it like maybe if you're going to University of Santa Barbara to get a history degree and you are going to party and drink a lot like and skip class, I would I I would realize how much you're investing and like really be ready to come out and make stuff because people like teenagers are making great features now. So it's like, you know, just be ready to roll and really give it your all. And I think what you said before about not being afraid to fail, not, not not being afraid to fail, but to do things that are out of your comfort zone and to test things and to discover, it's really a privilege to be able to do that, you know? And, and um, okay, you might get a D sometimes, but it's going to be invaluable later on. So I... I I think I did take risks, but I don't, maybe I should have, oh no, maybe I took enough risks actually. Maybe. I should. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, I was a very antisocial 
college student. I was probably just basically, I'm probably, hang on, I still am an antisocial individual, but that was a detriment definitely in film school because I, I think one of the more valuable things about it um, is the kids you're also, I say kids, yeah, I, I call kids, who are, anyone who's in college was a kid to me, even when I TA'd people who were like much older than me. You're in, a, you're in an environment where everybody wants the same goal. You want to succeed in this very difficult industry. And I did a disservice to myself by not getting out of my comfort zone, as these two have said, and, and tried to, if not make friendships, just like make relationships of some sort. Um, that isn't to say if you are an introvert, like make yourself uncomfortable, but just like a little bit, just, just get out a little bit. Um, and try to forge those valuable relationships because like to me everything as we said everything every class you can kind of already get from dvd features and the endless resources of the internet um so the appeal of film school thus becomes who else are you going to film school with right and rebecca you one of the producers at least on simchar was a fellow student leslie lucy right Yes, and I've also worked um, lately with Georg Karapetian as well, um, who who's now yeah. So he he was a he was a an art center student too, um, and yes, I would I, I've I've worked and I still work with a lot of of fellow like college um mates and i think it's it's really important and like i'm still in touch with you so i think I, and i think this networking it's not only about you know like you know it's not only about agents and managers but it's also about you know cinematographers writers directors every, every like uh, people who who, who are, are are teachers of the crafts uh, um also the press you know, it, it, and, and eventually festival programmers and PR people, like it's so, it, you know, it's really a people's, um, you know, it takes so many people to make films and to have them live once they're made because making a film is really just the beginning of it, you know? And that's what I found out the hard way when I made my film, you know? I was just like, oh no, I've made it, it's good. And then I was just like, oh my God, like to get it into festivals and to do that whole, it's a whole other, whole other thing. And I think it's really important to inform yourself about the industry as you're, once you're a student, as you're a student, because there are so many people who, are networking with festival programmers before they've even made their first film. And that's really important. Sometimes it's not possible, but if it's possible, um, definitely, you know, do that. Because it, the, it's my, once you have something made, it, 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 there is a sort of time, the, the clock is ticking. So if you're gonna learn all about life of a film after it's made, once the film is made, you're gonna, like in my case, I wasted a few months, you know, then, then thankfully things kicked in and we went to, to, to loads of festivals, but I spent some time when the film was made trying to figure out how this festival game works. And now with COVID, it's a whole other thing because I'm saying how much of a people's thing it is. And now it's quite difficult to meet people, but thankfully, you know, there are pros and cons. And I think that that's, Another thing to not get too stuck on the cons that you are dealt, you know, like I, I was in a, uh, come from a country that's very small and there are a lot of disadvantages. On the other hand, people were so excited when they saw a trailer because they hadn't seen a Maltese language, you know, film before um, in, in that way. So there are pros and cons and I think it's pointless to get stuck on the cons and focus on the pros and just go with it. Yeah, yeah I mean, God, focusing on the cons, like that was most of my mid-20s was just because I was like, I was in several different kinds of funks, but also included was a career funk. And to have the perseverance required to make it in the industry, because like one of my friends is an editor and he's a few years older than I am. And his theory, um, which has proven true, at least for him and I, has been that making it in the industry is a war of attrition. And if you can last around 10 years, something will happen and right on the 10 year mark something happened for him and right on like the nine or eight year mark something happened for me <laughs> same exactly yeah. the same mm -hmm. well I, I i can't remember when i was doing my first degree the 
I think the director of an alien tree or something came and he said it's 98% perseverance and 2% yeah. talent and I was a bit like I was a bit low on the talent stats but <laughs> it really it, like the perseverance I think is really important but Doug you had said something once in class which I think is so um, like I still use it today because you know especially with the writing you're not always inspired. You can't always write. You can't always produce stuff. And, you know, you, you, you can start really beating yourself up about it or you can very easily, um, you know, focus on something else, like, I don't know, remodeling your house or something um, and be like, oh, I'm doing something, you know, just, just, just procrastinating. But you had said it's really important to be like, okay, I'm going to do at least one thing related to my career every day, at least one thing. And I find that that at least stops you from panicking when you've got like writer's block, you know, or for whatever other reason, you're not able to network or whatever, or schmooze in this case. Um, and on the other hand, it, you know, it just, it just helps. It just helps you not to panic and it helps you to keep on track. And, and because it's true, it takes a lot of perseverance, but sometimes the reality is that you are stuck, you know, and that I think is, it's, it's good to understand that that's normal and not to freak out if, you know, and think it's not for you just because you get stuck, you know, for a couple of months or something. Absolutely. Or years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the one thing you do each day could be just taking a nap and recharging. Like, honestly, like the one thing you do could be like taking a break and like saying, I'm going to start again in a week or something like that. Honestly, just we all have depression and anxiety. I think if we're writer director types ish, right, we can talk about it. So, you know, you can cut yourself. Dare a break you too. call me out. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I think a lot of us, whatever genre we work in, in a way we're trying to either capture or diag like diagnose or replicate something that we feel or think. Mm. And that comes from life as well. So there's nothing wrong with living life as well. No. You know, like it's important. Otherwise, you know, you end up being all meta in your work because it's all about having writer's block. <laughs> yeah, and the, the business is not the best industry for supporting mental health among uh, people who have a lot of work in it. So you do have to kind of take care of yourself a little bit. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, uh, and I just want to kind of reiterate something Rebecca just said about, um, or said a bit ago about um, networking with a variety of different kind of people, because that also, I think, particularly for people who are really uh, interested in writing, um, you know, a lot of times it's, it's you focus on the development side and just producers and people like that that buy scripts. But I, if I'm understanding great, so Rebecca, like your movie kind of got started because your cinematographer posted something from the short film, visual right? effects guy. Yeah, he put it in, visual effects. In, in his, in his uh, portfolio piece on his website. And then I got a call from the host of the... Uh, this is a while ago now, so it worked a bit differently with websites, but uh, I, I had a, a website which was basically, you know, I, I paid the low, low package because I, it was a private thing where I was, you know, I would send the link and the password to people I was pitching to. Um, and um, then because he had linked the trailer from his website to this website, I got a call from the provider saying like, you have all this traffic, you're in the wrong package. And I'm like, I have all this traffic, what? <laughs> so then, and then, you know, and then it just took off like that. And then there was the, then, then there was a call from a journalist who was like, oh, you know, there's, there, everyone's posting about this, this trailer on, on Facebook. I was wondering, can you tell me about the release date? And I'm like, oh, it's not the date. <laughs> so, um, but then because of that, you know, we were able to have articles. And again, because I had, I really think, I mean, I think it's good to, to, to network with everyone, even if it's, and I think most importantly, not because you can get something tangible necessarily out of them, but just from, you know, to find out how, like, how does the press work? What's interesting to the press? So that you'll find that later on when you need the press, you know how to pitch to the press as well because you're gonna be needing to do that. And if you have a producer to do that for you, when they speak to you, you know how to speak to them. And with lawyers, you're gonna need lawyers. So network with them too. And accountants, they might not always be your type of person necessarily. <laughs> You know, different skill, skill sets, it's all good. So I think, and then for example, even um, 
when I went to, to a festival with my short, I met the guy who eventually did all the visual effects on the film, who was in Croatia. And this is the beauty of, you know, having all this online stuff. Now you don't even need to be in the same country to, you know, to, to do things. So, um, so it's amazing. And we are, we are each, like we, as May said, we're all, we all want to succeed. And to be honest, I don't think we really compete with each other because if you, if you think that somebody else can make, ex do exactly the same thing as you, then you're not doing the right thing because you're, you're not giving it something that's genuine. No. So I think we're not really competing in that sense, but we can actually work a lot together. And with Simshar, it was the, with the fe first feature, it was definitely a case of all these people who were hungry to do something. And we saw the opportunity there and we thought, okay, let's like rally together and, and, and make it happen. I think you're hitting on, I might pivot the conversation just a bit, but what you said really, like the, the idea that everyone is an individual and what you're making is the only thing that you could possibly be making thus we're not competing i think it's just so fabulous and something that i it's i might have felt that in film school but i would not have been able to like verbalize it so eloquently because particularly the year i was at art center everybody kind of had you know a finger like a, a feather in their cap about like well i'm the next tarantino and i'm the next chris nolan and blah 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 and I like, even at 23, I was like, I'm pretty good with dialogue, but I'm not Tarantino. And that's just like a fact. <laughs> but it was like this annoying thing that I found in everybody else. And that's like my anti-socialness, like kind of sneaking in. But there was this general, like, not obsession, but this desire to be the next something. And I think that is actually not only like detrimental to one's like own, like, like, understanding of their career but like to their work as well like to to know that you are an artist and the thing you make is the is can only be made by you is so powerful and important and absolutely true yeah. you bring back memories because i remember those years where there was a lot of you know the next tarantino type of guys and they would write scripts that were like ripoffs of the Tarantino or just say ripoff like but had that kind of Tarantino dialogue but that's like him right like that's not so then everybody everybody just looks like they're ripping off Tarantino it's like that's not how you're gonna succeed they've got Tarantino you know they don't need another yeah. one so no they were writing uh Tarantino fan fiction which I yeah. don't mean to knock like I got my, I started <laughs> I started writing as a teenager via fan fiction but like I like I only wrote fan fiction to the point at which I was started being able to more competently and confidently write my own stuff like you can't there's only so much room you have when you're when you put yourself in a Tarantino box right and I do think and actually you make a good point there too which is you know I think everybody kind of starts out writing like the people that they like because you have to find your voice right it doesn't come fully formed that's another kind of misconception I think that somehow this muse is going to come through you and you're going to turn out this genius work from day one um, which doesn't really happen, you know, but and, and, you know, the equivalent for, for my generation was like Star Wars, where everybody in film school wanted to be the next George Lucas, but they were all just making like Star Wars-like things or writing Star Wars-like things. And it's like, yeah, when Lucas made Star Wars, nobody was doing that. That's why it was so impactful, <laughs> right? So if you're just acting like him, then you're not actually doing what he did, which was to find his own thing, right? Yeah, and I think that that's very, like, for example, you know, now that we're in this sort of COVID moment and if people are, are coming out of film school and they're like thinking, okay, there is a, a, a vacuum now of, of uh, content, they're going to want content. What content are they going to want? And I was reading about this as well because I was thinking, okay, I, I might as well, you know, capitalize on this like and I was reading how all these people were saying oh you know people we we, we are going to be looking for content which um, takes us out of the mundane and all of this at the beginning of quarantine and then normal people was normal people in the states a huge hit because like in Europe normal people the series was a huge hit and it's literally called normal people literally and it is like super low concept about this, you know, couple. And I was thinking, look at that. I mean, imagine you want to write a low concept thing. You, you read that they're going to be looking for this and you do everything to try and do that. And it's not you. Like the truth is nobody knows. So you might as well just do the genuine thing and okay, be a bit smart in the sense that um, if, 
if you have access to something that other people don't have, then you do that. If you, uh, it, it, with COVID, you know, logistics of production are going to probably be a certain way for a certain time, then think ahead. I'm not saying just like be free and, you know, do some, but as in don't, I think you, you shouldn't compromise on that basic gen, genuinity, if that's even a word. Yeah, no, authenticity sells. Thank you. But but like, I think like you were saying, people still want to watch a movie. They want to see a rom-com. They want to see a horror movie. It's not like, you know, do your, do your crazy, um, you know, full nude ballet horror movie. It's still, you know, people still want a movie and that's why like, I think normal people was so successful during quarantine is because it just brings us back to the normalcy of being human. And so I think that's, yeah, that's the most important thing. Even Tarantino works like inside of a box. He's still making movies and not doing like experimental poetry. So. Oh yeah, for sure. And he he has a certain (laughs) genre as well. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. and, And it's an interesting, like that whole, you know, there's a whole discussion right now, like, what are people going to want? And, and, you know, and actually I'm hearing from like executives and producers that nobody knows, right? Like nobody's venturing an idea of what people, what they think people are going to want because it just, you know, like it's too, it's too unique a situation that we're in right now. Um, so, and, and it just, I think it's making me think of a story, a lesson that I learned early on when I found my first agent who is sort of a brand new agent himself. Um, I had a science fiction script that had won a contest but it was, you know, because all these things are cyclical, it was a time nobody wanted science fiction. Like it wasn't, it was just sort of like, oh, that genre is dead or whatever. Um, and then a movie came out, a science fiction movie came out, it was a big hit. And then it was like, everybody's looking for science fiction scripts. And he's like, you have that one that won the contest, we should send it out. But then he was like, well, we wanna make sure it's great first. So why don't I give, me give you some notes and let's work on it. And like, so I spent the next six months rewriting it. And then he was all excited and sent it out. And everybody's like, oh yeah, we bought all our sci-fi scripts three months ago. Like, we, we've got it in production. So, um, so I think the lesson we both took away from that was like, oh, when the door of opportunity opens, you know, like go through it then. Don't like, don't, don't psych yourself out. Um, and it's, so the one thing I know that's happening right now is that people are very concerned about, you know, obviously the production um, restrictions that COVID is causing everybody. And so there's a, there's actually like sort of demand right now for scripts that are like a small number of characters and a small number of locations, interiors that can be very controlled. Um, and I have something like that. Um, and so we're, we're sending it up, but we're trying not to make the mistake of like waiting till they have a vaccine and nobody's interested in those anymore. Totally. <laughs> but, um, but the other thing about that is both of those were scripts that I had, right? I wasn't trying to chase that because I think if you sit down and try to write the thing that they want right now, by the time you finish, the, it's moved on, right? So if you have the thing, send it out, but that's, you know, because then it's authentic, it's coming from you and you're not just chasing whatever the fad is. I think that's super, that's a super cool thing you just said there is like being prepared for the trend is super important. Like if you already have, you know, a teen rom-com and suddenly teen rom-coms are huge on Netflix, you already have that script and you can get in at the beginning as opposed to sending it out when they're all releasing already. So I think that's a really cool thing that you said. Yeah, and I, and I think it's also the, if you're, if you're writing, like it's one of the reasons that you just always want to keep writing, right? Because that material is never, it may not sell right then, but it's never really dead, you know? It takes that's time. What was, yeah, that's what I was thinking, that if you write something that is sort of genuine, it's never going to go out of date. Like if it's really saying something, if it's really, you know, t- touching a nerve, whether it's sci-fi or it's, 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 it's a rom-com or it's, doesn't have a genre um, it, it doesn't fit in a genre if it has that sort of if, if it hits that core at some point you know it, it, it's kind it's timeless because it's hitting on like a yeah yeah I was gonna comment off your your networking comments earlier and it kind of dovetails with what you just said there as I like to look at networking not so much as networking but just like learning about people and their common humanity because if you have that project that has that common humanity i mean that's the thing that's going to be good whether it's a rom-com a sci-fi or horror or whatever and that that's 
that's your networking too. To me, networking is beyond that. It's meeting, you know, the alligator farmer in Florida whose story might be good. And maybe you could bring him in on a pitch and people will be like, wow. So it's just about getting to know absolutely everyone's common humanity and like learning about people in general, I think. And maybe only 10% of that you really have to worry about are the lawyers, the festival programmers and stuff. Just get to know everybody. Be curious about everyone, I think. I think it makes networking a lot easier because networking was always super stressful for me. It was like, oh my God, I have to go up to this executive producer and like, and like introduce myself. But if you're doing that to everyone, if you're doing that to, you know, the guy you see at the gas station, be like, hey, what's up? And listen to his story. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah. And I think a thing that helps me in the situation of like, oh, no, I have to go up to an, like an executive producer is knowing that like, oh, wait, this is just like part of their lives. <laughs> part of their lives is having young people come up to them. Like that's a normal thing for yeah. them. Um, with me, like I like to. True. The guy at the gas station is freaked out. <laughs> He's just like, what? <laughs> I've gotten a haircut and revealed that I was a screenwriter and somebody was like, here's my card. We should talk. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> but thank you for thinking that, yes, you probably have a great story. I am not the one to tell. Goodbye. <laughs> my um, worst one was the guy at the unemployment office where I was no. applying for unemployment. And he was like, have I got a screenplay for you? That is Sorry. a scene. That is a scene. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's fine. Um, my my family um, is, I'm just Asian American enough so that my most of my extended family is kind of confused about what I do. And they, like, I just got an email from my uncle congratulating me on the scary story that is the Quibi short. I'm like, you mean the thing starring Ming-Na Wen and Karen Allen? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, sure, thank you. But... Um, to backtrack a bit with networking, I have like, I like to think of myself if I could use nerdy terms, like I think of myself as like a charmeleon in, in my career, not really a Charmander, not a Charizard or a mega Charizard. I'm like right in that middle. And that means I really like talking to Charmanders and, um, the advice I always give them on networking is like, reach out to people like if you're not going to a film school and you're probably sitting there going like well how do I network if there's not instantly just a pool of people around me like it 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 doesn't hurt to like reach out over dms or or email like the worst thing that can happen is that they don't answer or they say they don't have time like when I was first getting started and being dumb and in my mid-20s I was so so afraid of pissing someone off or offending someone by accident and like that ending my career. And it's like, that's not gonna, you, you would have to do so much to make some random stranger angry at you. As long as you are, you know, char not charming, but as long as you are like not an arrogant jerk about the fact that you are a young person trying to get started, like you're probably gonna be fine. Yeah, I-, I the greatest, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say that, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I've had people say before, like, oh, I have this contact, this, you know, whatever, I've met this guy, whatever, I have this connection, but I don't want to call him because I'm afraid I'll ruin the relationship. And I'm like, well, you know, do you really have a relationship if you can't make the call, right? <laughs> like, so, so, you know, sometimes you just got to take that, that shot. Um, the other side of that, um, you know, obviously you don't want to harass people. And I think one of the problems is we think of networking as so, like, transactional. And I was terrified of it, too. Like, what you were saying about it, like, I was, I hated it. And I think it was partly because I thought of it as, like, selling right like i was a used car salesman trying to convince someone to buy my scripts and really it's like finding people that have the same passion as you like why wouldn't you want to get to know a film festival director they love movies right you guys have some something in common presumably you love movies too if you're making them so um you know and and you don't that doesn't mean you have to get along with everybody either right you can find the, the type of people that like the type of movies you do and that's going to be better networking than than any other thing what finally motivated me to be willing to talk to anyone was taking solace in the fact that right after they meet me, they have forgotten me. They have so many other things to think about. They aren't thinking about me the next second. And if we happen to become friends and they do think about me after that moment, great. But if, if that interaction doesn't mean anything to them, 
they are thinking about their kids, their family, you know, it, it really, I think you can go up and have a conversation with anyone because with very minimal risk because of that. Um, yeah. I think taking off the pressure is a big thing. I'm putting things into perspective as well, you know? It's yeah. A, um, and, and maybe, as you're saying, it's, it's quite a good tactic to be like, look, 99% of the time, nothing comes out of this. So what's the big deal? Let me go in for it. It doesn't mean you don't, first of all, I think it's very important not to be arrogant, like, especially being on like sometimes on the receiving end of things. Like I got so many emails and messages from like young Maltese uh, aspiring filmmakers or actors. I try to answer all of them. The ones that I love answering are the ones that have something genuine to say and aren't just like, can you give me this, 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 and this? And so yeah, don't, don't ask for a job. <laughs> that's, not, that's shockingly not what networking is about. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like, I mean, I, I, if I can help you, I would like to help you, but like, don't be so aggressive and so, so entitled, like, you know, right. this stuff. So I think it's really important to do that. And I, so it, it, it and it's important to be prepared. And if somebody asks you something, you should have something, you know, to, 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 to pitch and to follow up with. But, you know, you, you should like relax a little bit. And I think related to that and to dovetail off of what you said earlier, May, about sort of, you know, your uncle, like congratulating you on the scary story. Um, most of my family doesn't understand either. And I think yeah. it's really important that you as a person understand why you're doing this and why you want to put so much time and sacrifice so much because very often people aren't going to understand you know you might mm. be you might be lucky and have a supportive parent or a supportive partner or a supportive friend someone who believes in you or a mentor or a teacher but sometimes you're just going to be on your own thinking you know i really believe that this is a story worth telling and i'm going to do it for that and if it takes me three years to write the pilot um, if, as long as you are doing everything that you can to write that pilot, it doesn't really matter what other people think. They might think you're a bum. They might think it doesn't matter because you know that you are reading and watching stuff and uh, gleaning experiences and trying to create things and, 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 and spending hours pouring over your script. And you know that you're doing what you have to do in your own way. And you can only really stick to that if you believe in the reason why you're doing it. Mm. And, and that, that reason isn't to walk some red carpet or to become a millionaire. Like those no. aren't going to help you stick and to that's, it. And that's where like the strength to persevere comes from and like the strength to win the war of attrition. Like, um, I'm sorry, I'm losing my thought. Please go on. If, if, <laughs> if, you can, if, if you can identify, if you can align your career with what your virtues are as a person and that's what you're going towards, you can, I mean, your longevity will be unstoppable because for me, for me, for me, what's most important to me is community and hanging out and laughing with people. I know that like what I want to do is sit around a table and laugh with people. And that is a TV writer's room and like be with, I'm always seeking interesting people with interesting stories and misfits and people who have a good laugh. And knowing that I could do that for the rest of my life is what motivates me. So I think if, you're, if your career is aligned with what is most virtuous to you, you're gonna definitely make it all the way. It's not, not selling or, you know, maybe making money is what's virtuous to you, but there's a lot easier ways to make money. Yeah. Like selling I think, drugs. Yeah. I think it was Dan Harmon who said, if you can be happy doing anything else but, but writing scripts, like, you should do that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Max, the way you were speaking about your virtues and stuff, I think that's, like, the definition of a vocation, no? That's what a vocation is. When you literally, like, if you can't imagine yourself doing something else, you're doing the wrong thing by doing this. Like, you know, it's, it should be everything for you. And that doesn't mean that you're, you're locking yourself up in a room and not speaking to anyone and only for you <laughs> to write. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that you find that basically, you know, not to go all Monty Python, but like the meaning of life is in, you know, in, 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 in putting, you know, what you, pouring what you believe in into those scripts and for you that makes everything worthwhile you know whether, yeah. whether those things, scripts get made whether you get paid for them you know all those things that have to be secondary in order for them to happen ironically 
Yeah, and it's it's a there's a secondary strength too, like in a writer's room, because I've been in positions of being in a room where poor decisions are getting made. Poor decisions are getting made, perhaps about something I might be an expert on, just by being a queer woman. Like I might be able, like I might be in a compromising position of having to be like that's wrong, and. <laughs> having the repercussions of calling some or not even calling someone out but just trying to enact the good amount of change to happen at the start of production in the writer's room at the core at the heart of whatever this is going to eventually become and it's a extremely uncomfortable and continually traumatizing experience that i just keep seeming to have um, <laughs> but having those virtues of knowing like no this is not only is writing and making media that I know I loved growing up for other people like not only is that a virtue but writing what you know in your heart of hearts is like this is the right thing to do and this is what I needed as a kid or as a as a young adult so I that's what I'm going to put out there regardless of how much work it's going to actually be and I think that makes you a good team player as well by sort of by caring so much about the final product over and above anything else that makes you a good team player when you're in a writer's room or if you're a director or if you're you've got a you know a co-writer on a feature if, if the work comes first and that can only come first if you don't have other agendas um like you know wanting to be famous or all this other, like ego stuff um, then that makes you a better a better writer and a better team player i think I agree with I agree with what May was saying about the virtue also of um, getting stuff out there, discussions that you want to you, you want to see in the world. Like my favorite film festivals by far are the ones in like small town middle America because like I've had like an old couple come up to me who are like in their 70s and be like wow, we never thought we would be having a conversation about, you know, I made a short film about a cuddle party and this couple came up to me and they were like, you taught us so much. And like the gift of being able to teach, a, you know, a 70 year old couple in Cleveland about this subculture that they were genuinely interested in. I was like, okay, this feels really good. This is what I want to do. And I think, yeah, delivering that message is also so important to want to have. Um, to also give you that longevity, like believe that you can do some good. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I, I've been doing it a little longer than, than all of you. Um, and, uh, but I'm sure you'll probably also agree, like the, there's ups and downs in the careers in this business, right? Like it is, it is feast and famine and you have to have something to get you through those down times. And, you know, if you care about the work, then that really carries you through when you're, you know, when it seems like nothing's happening, when you've lost your representation and, you know, feel like no one cares about your writing anymore like it comes back around but you need something to sustain you and that if you're just chasing money and fame then that's really going to be a hard hard road to hold there. a very a very wise writer in the zoe's writer's room said it's not about not giving a fuck it's about giving thousands of fucks and it's about like getting excited over and over again like after a defeat you have to like see the next thing that's going to make you super excited which may be insanity, maybe I am an insane person, but after 99 rejections, I'm still excited for like that next idea number 100. It's just, it's still fun to me. So I think that's really important. Yeah. So um, we've kind of been, oh, sorry, Rebecca, go ahead. No, I was just going to dovetail on that, that I think a lot of this sort of getting through these tough times is not so much about how often you fall. I mean, it's a cliche, no, it's not, it's not how often you fall, it's about getting back up, really, you know? And if you have that drive, whether it's issue-based, um, and if, whether it's issue-based for actual issues, or whether it's just because you believe that, uh, you know, stories are important to, to, to people, or you want to, to give them what uh, was so important to you in your childhood, or whatever, um, uh, it's very, uh, what's important is, is that not how often you're knocked down, but really, and there are so many stories of very, very, um, uh, very successful people whose work is really important, who were knocked down, like, you know, they had so many failures, but they still kept, kept coming and eventually, you know, they got through. Yeah. 
So we've definitely uh, kind of gone to my last question about advice for, for people uh, entering the business. So let, let me kind of do some um, maybe more specific for each of you. So, um, so Matt, you've just uh, done your first sort of uh, network television writer's room experience. Any, uh, any particular tips for the, from the writer's room? Because that's something I think is very unfamiliar to a lot of people. Until you've done it, you don't really know. Ooh, gosh. I feel like I feel like I have so many. Um, I think a good piece of advice, it kind of echoes my, it kind of echoes my, my networking advice, but especially as a staff writer, the expectation is this is your first job in TV. Um, not, it, not that much is expected of you. Like, writing on a TV show and TV production is such a unique beast that there's no way you're gonna know what's up until you're actually in the room. Um, you can watch a lot of TV shows, you can you know, watch all the DVD commentaries and stuff like that, but there's really no way to feel how you're gonna flow through it until you're actually in it. So I, I encourage people who are in their first job like that who are getting their first opportunity to mostly be an observer and just really see see who is successful in the room see who is getting a lot of stuff done um while still being courageous um having having courage to fail in the room is definitely one of the most important things you never want to you never want to pitch the same idea twice if it gets shot down but you need to be willing to keep pitching even when 20 ideas don't work. Um, you need to be able to, you know, continue to contribute even in the face of um, that adversity of feeling like you're not contributing. You just need to have the faith that maybe idea number 20 will keep going and, um, you know, just really observe, you know, really take the time to observe and learn even as a staff writer, um, maybe if you're a writer's assistant, you know, that learning period is intrinsic to that job. But even as a staff writer, um, I would just not worry about it too much and just do your homework and read a lot and know the show and yeah, take it easy on yourself. Um, yeah, okay, great, great advice. Um, May, so you're, this, this is, I don't even quite know what question to ask because you're doing Quibi and I really don't, this is such a new thing, but um, I'm curious about your Quibi experience and any, anything uh, lessons learned from that or observations from there? Well, I'll say you might want to ask me another question because the production company I was with, um, Gunpowder and Sky, did a lot to be the middleman between me and Quibi. And also I had come off of uh, Transformers Cyberverse, which is an 11 minute cartoon. So the scripts generally were around like 15 to 18 pages. So when Gunpowder and Sky was like, you know, they were kind of like downplaying like, now it's a short, so you know, that means that we're gonna have to work on this. And I was like, oh no, no, I can write, I can write a 15 page script, no problem. <laughs> so I, I had one of, I'm sure the more easier experiences just because of my, experience on animation I was able to just basically deliver I'm not going to toot my own horn and say like the first draft was perfect but I had a very smooth experience that so, I I don't know if it was a universal experience or not so you had already uh, uh, been in that world kind of with animation well then do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about um, the process of writing animation which is not generally a writer's room, and I know there are a few, but most shows don't have a writer's room. How does, how does yeah, sure. Um, so I accidentally, accidentally, I did kind of just fall into animation. Like it was not my goal. And I'll always be thankful that animation has been my big break and has given me the ability to be financially stable and actually make things. Um, but I, I would say I've had the fortunate luck that I have mostly been in writer's rooms for, for animation. For Transformers Cyberverse, I was there for like two years, I think. Um, I'm currently on another one that's going for a while. But in general, rooms are much shorter. Uh, I had a room that was only 11 weeks long. And we actually had a friend of theirs who was constantly visiting who was on a live action thing. <laughs> but um, I would say, the process, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of beast. 
And I had gone from a 22-minute episode of Young Justice straight to an 11-minute Transformers Cyberverse. And I couldn't even give the Cyberverse team, like, an animation sample to read because I couldn't give them Young Justice. So they read a feature. And so I had to do the very quick learning curve of going from just like what I, what my normal writing was, which was features and pilots to like this 11 minute thing. And it is a different beast and you really just have to cut out all the shoe leather and just make sure that like the characters are shining and the story is clear, but you really, there's no time for anything else. Um, And of course there's other considerations to make like what is your age range which is a much bigger deal in animation i have found um and sort of what is your desired you know what is your desired lesson like in pitching animation i have Mm. found that having having a core like lesson you want to impart like i've been able to pitch on animation for and usually i lean on the idea of like this is the show i needed as a kid to teach me this lesson that like i just somehow never got taught and i need and that's what i want to make so there you go cool it's a fun world if you're ever curious yes (laughs) um okay so and then rebecca um so you started with a, this film that was pretty successful, Simshar, you know, then you certainly a lot of attention. Um, and, then, uh, and then talk about how you transitioned from that to like the next phase. What do you do after the film? So to be honest, when I made the film, I spent a lot of time getting it out. And then I actually traveled like for almost three years. I just traveled all around the world with this. It was, it was a lot of fun and it was very important, but maybe I should have started writing my second feature a little earlier. <laughs> um, but I did, I did, I mean, it was percolating because when I was in post on Simshar, I had this idea and it was percolating. And I think everybody, like, I think I know that I take time with things and I need that time. So I, I, I sort of accepted it and maybe accepted it a bit too much. But um, then I, I, when I had my, a draft I was happy with, I actually um, gave it to uh, the guy who owned the post-production company in Ireland who did um, some of the posts on Simshar. And he really liked it. And he was like, oh, I'll come up on this as a producer and I can get other co-producers that... Um, come to my facility, you know, to, to, to make stuff. And then, and then I also had agents. So then to get it out to talent, like to Macy and to Rachel Portman and to, to others that I can't mention, but, um, and who, who are uh, unofficially attached, it, it, it's, it's much easier then because you have access. Um, so, so that's, that was my transition, but my, now I've learned from that and I'm, Unfortunately, like we were quite, quite close to getting ready to go and COVID hit. And of course it's like, you know, it's in a music hall with lots of people and it's like incubator for a virus. No, <laughs> uh, so that's going to be on pause. And thankfully I had, you know, I had learned my lesson and I had started developing my other ideas. And I think it's really important to have, I know, again, it's like, you know, I, I, I will, it's said so, so often that you should have a slate, you know, and, but I, I needed to learn that the hard way. My mother always tells me, like, I was like, I learned from my mistakes. And she's like, but do you have to make so many mistakes? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, I do. And it's, I, I learned that it really is important to have more than one thing that is, you know, it doesn't need to be fully baked, but it needs to be more or less there because, you might meet somebody and you know you might need to pitch something new or something unexpected might come about these things take especially if you're doing like independent features you know which are not network and they, they take years so even for your own sanity it's good to have more than one thing going because you'll have a lot of activity over some months and it's like almost ready to go then suddenly you will be quiet but if you have another thing you know that will also have its ebbs and flows and and that that would be my the thing I learned and I hope that I'm going to be much better at is to to when I have the ideas to, to really try and, and, and develop them um, in, in, in parallel. The best thing about Zoom meetings now that we're doing like generals and pitches on Zoom is that I have a whiteboard behind my computer that has like 20 different ideas on it with the title so that 
I just glance up and I can pitch like 20 different things on the fly. It's the best. I had a pitch where I was reading off my Word document, but the director had instructed me to, to make it so that it was like, I was constantly reading right below the camera. So it looked like I was just looking at camera. <laughs> it's, the best. it's so good. Uh, I hope we stay like this forever. <laughs> there are pros, you know, there are pros. And I think if, if I were coming out of, of film school now, I might be a bit worried because, you know, the film festival circuit, all these things are, are up in the air, but there are pros and focus on those pros. You know, the good thing about change is that it's opportunity. So just like take the opportunity. I'm super excited to have a film in a festival this October, but not able to go there because I'm an American and it's in Europe. <laughs> That's the nature of things. That is, yeah, that is not the best uh, scenario. But yes, I agree. General meetings are so much nicer when you don't have to like drive and park. Yeah, and I'll do a sure. shout out for animation. It's been able to just truck along no problem. Like we're working from home, but it has not experienced any um, stopping. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, thank you guys. Any Anything anybody wants to say before we sign off here? No, I guess Thanks not. Thanks for having us. All the <laughs> yeah, wisdom has been dispensed. All right. <laughs> Um, well, thank you guys. That was great. Uh, and uh, for those watching, um, you know, thanks for joining us. And I hope I'll see you next time for more talking about writing for film and television.